Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening, good evening, good evening. It is December 22nd, 2012, meaning that we have avoided the end of the world. We're still here. We're still talking. Welcome to Dose Nation, episode one, the first podcast. I am your host, Jake Kettle. My co-host, James Kenton, also the founder of this um, of this of, of this project, Dose Nation. James, how are you this evening? Hello, Jake. I'm doing well. I'm a little disappointed that the world didn't end. Are you? I mean, I'm a little. I, uh, I well, I guess I'm a little disappointed at how uneventful the end of the world actually was. So the world didn't end, right? We're still here. And uh, and I'm very glad about that, because if we weren't still here, then we wouldn't be able to do the, do the show. And um, so there was a lot of hype. And, and, and there were and actually people I, w- I was doing some reading. There are certain spots that people believed would would be 2012 safe havens. And like all these people booked hotel rooms and they booked flights and they like spent money and they and they went to these places. And now nothing happened. <laughs> It's it's sort of a letdown. I mean, it's 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 a good reminder to not believe the hype in a lot of things. Um, I I can imagine a lot of people planned their lives around this event for many years. I mean, some for some at least a decade, if not more, and to have it be so irrelevant in the larger scheme of things. Uh, it's really it's it's sort of a letdown in a lot of ways. I uh, I would have liked to see something more significant than um, Gangnam Style reaching a billion views on YouTube being the headline of the day. Yeah, and actually, I I I was looking at that song earlier today. Believe it. <laughs> you, no way, you're not going to believe this. When you were editing the intro song, I got bored and I looked up that song and I and I and I said, oh, I said, damn, it has a billion views. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's that happened yesterday, and actually, my um, my nine year old son predicted that that he that Psy would hit a billion views on on December twenty first, and I said, well, that just means that Psy must be the uh, a new Messiah. Yeah, he he he's is the second he's the second coming of Jesus or Quetzalcoatl, <laughs> because he's now the, he's now the he's now the biggest name on the planet. Right, right. So maybe so maybe he is the one. He is the one. He is the chosen one. <laughs> oh, uh, um, s- s- speaking of which, uh, the the uh, the chosen one. Uh, I wonder how I wonder how uh, how all these cults feel now, who were like dedicated to this, you know, who thought that they were the the chosen people, like these people who thought that they were going to be picked up by aliens. That I was reading at this one place in France or something. They believed that if they went to this town, they were going to be picked up by aliens. And like say which town is this? Some I I in, don't uh, know. I it's somewhere in Europe. I I believe that it's somewhere in Europe. But I mean, totally totally off the wall. And these people spent money to go over there and like you know okay, uh, and then nothing happened. Right. <laughs> so now you're in a village in France. You're standing there at midnight. You have your you have your arms raised up in the air, right? And you're saying, "Come take me." Where where are they? And nothing yeah, happens. It's it's um. You know, you have to look back at the history of doomsday prophecy and realize that the error rate is 100%. No doomsday prophecy has ever been correct. So um, anybody who says that they have one is is really, really, really fighting the odds and is, is probably going to be wrong. 
Um, it's it's really funny. I mean, the Y2K thing was kind of a technological hype. I don't even know what this what this 2012 thing was. At least in Y2K, there was some storyline like machines were going to go crazy because of an error in the code, and jets were going to fall out of the sky. There was there was something. There was a causal connection to the to the hysteria. With 2012, I never really even knew what the causal connection was, other than it was this sort of a obscure date on the Mayan calendar, which may or not may or may not actually be the correct date on the Mayan calendar. But for some reason, this collection of ones and twos, 2012, one and zero, is became like this really significant date in modern culture. Uh, it, it's and so many people jumped on board that bandwagon. It was, um, you know, it came out of Jose Arguez and uh, Terrence McKenna and a few other people who, uh, you know, kind of banged this meme to the ground as they traveled the globe. And most of the band, John Major Jenkins is another one. Uh, they were really, really convinced that they were right. That 2012 and, uh, was going to be the end of the world. Yeah. Well, I mean, see, here's, but see, here's the thing. Everybody, every age, right, every group of grouping of people has some kind of doomsday prophecy. Like, I mean, I'm sure that when, you know, the Romans saw the Visigoths pour, and pour through the walls, like, they literally thought it was going to be the end of the world. But that was not the case, you know? I mean... Maybe maybe the end of the civilized world, but it was you know, or um, didn't the? I think there was there was there was one uh, one one group of Christians who thought that the end of the world was going to come in four hundred you know A.D. or something. Well, we're still here, <laughs> you know. So every age kind of has this, and I think the next big one is twenty sixty. I think is the next one they're going to start start on. Yeah, every I guess everyone needs a, a few uh, at least a few decades to gather believers. Uh, so there's a there's a church right across the street from my house where I live here in Seattle, and it's called the Institute of Divine Metaphysical. Oh, it's it's the uh, Institute of Divine Metaphysical Studies or Divine Medical Metaphysical Research, I think. And I looked into them. They're just a small little cult, and they had a doomsday prophecy that went back to 1968. And when that doomsday didn't come, they kept revising it. So then it was like 1973, and then it was 1984, and then it was Y2K, and then it was 2012. And I don't know how many times you can revise the same the end prophecy. date of your doomsday prophecy. Without coming out and saying, we have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Without coming out and saying, well, 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 we actually don't, don't know when the end of the world is going to be. Right. How many times does an does a adherent have to buy that story before they go, wait a second, there's something going on here. You can't be wrong this many times and still have something intelligent to say. Right. There's like a certain point in time when we have to say, okay, but, but see, followers and people will, 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 will get so wrapped up in it that they'll just continue to, you know, continue to attend these, these little church conferences or whatever they are of people who, you, you know, espousing the same thing over and over and over again about when the end date's going to be, even though it doesn't come. Like, so this like is one of those to. weird things that you can transcend into all religions, where you can say at the core of all religions, there's this really sort of ridiculous concept of a god or a miracle or something. And then even though the adherents may not really strictly believe that anymore, 
they've already formed a group around that concept. And so that concept lives on because the group is there to keep it going. So in a, in a doomsday cult, there's a very specific date at which their faith is tested. And in all other religions, there is no specific date when your faith is tested. I guess Christianity is a little bit of a doomsday cult, some forms of Christianity, because they're all waiting revelations. Right, we'll see, we'll see they're, all, they're, all, they're all trying to reach a state of liberation as well. These, these, these philosophies and religions are supposed to liberate their, their, their practitioners in some way. Well, that's in theory, but in practice, they oppress their practitioners. Oh, no, of course, but, you know, there's always theory and practice, you know. I mean, in practice, they oppress, they suppress knowledge, but supposedly the goal of these, and maybe even in the beginning, like, for example, I, you know, at least in my opinion, Paul of Tarsus is the one who spread Christianity into the, you know, St. Saint, Saint Paul, into what we have today, but, you know, some of, some of the adherents really... We're looking for liberation, and they was and they was supposed to be kept as a small cult, uh, you know, mystery mystery type cult where these people were going to, you know, find the gnosis and all that kind of stuff. But uh, and I think that that's where most of it starts out, and then it kind of develops from there. And as it gets integrated into power structures, it becomes less about the principles and more about kind of maintaining the status quo and kind of maintaining that... Maintaining the power structure. Right, and now maintaining that power structure. What's so interesting is that after the collapse of Rome, the Catholic Church was in the perfect position to take hold of the power structure because they were so heavily embedded in the Roman state by the end of the... by, by the end of the empire that you, have, you, you now have Christianity... And even though the church has developed past the point of it actually having a stranglehold, <clears throat> and even though there are all these different groups that have kind of branched off of it, they still hold that central idea. And it's supposed to be about liberation and kind of living without sin. So you that may so you so then in the afterlife you may be liberated from this body of pain and suffering and earthly right. you know, realm. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, at the end of the day, they've just continued to maintain power. It's no longer about the philosophy that it that it may have been when it when it originated two thousand years ago. Well, so let's bring that forward to this 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 modern uh, singularity movement where people are constantly looking for what's next. What's the next step in human evolution? Is it is it going to be um, you know some sort of doomsday event that turns everything into a radical new society? Is it going to be some sort of elevation of consciousness that makes everybody suddenly realize that we were stupid before, but now we're all much smarter? Or uh, is it something else? Uh, does the singularity movement really even have any teeth anymore? And uh, I think the only, the only thing that they have left is this, this concept of a, a technological singularity where machine consciousness becomes more intelligent than human intelligence or human consciousness and then somehow takes over. Right. And then, and then there's, a, there's a global shift in history where the machines are writing history instead of the humans because they're the ones in power and they're the ones in control. Now for, and I think that's still a long ways off. Now, from what I was reading, I mean, look, for, for there to be super, superhuman intelligence, there would have to be speed improvements, right? And this is actually something that you talk about in your book, isn't it? Um, like this, you know, this, bit, yeah. yeah, the speed of perception and things like that, the 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 ability for for machines to process information at a faster rate, 
But we had a discussion the other day, you know, obviously off the air about this, and you had mentioned overheating. Well, so yeah, this is the thing is that um, when we look, when we think of computers, the, the, your desktop computer or your laptop, you're talking about a single processor, a single machine. Sometimes you have a dual core core processor, but really you're talking about a single processor that's handling handling a lot of calculations one after the other. Whereas the human brain and intelligent systems, they have multiple processing centers doing smaller tasks and passing the results of those smaller tasks up into what we would call a central processing unit. Now, the problem, you can say, well, then why don't we make a machine that's got 20 processors in its brain that's handling all of this information? And then the problem becomes how much energy that takes, how hot that gets when you have all of that processing power, the faster you try to process all of that parallel processing in a machine intelligence environment, it gets very hot. And that's why you need these super cooling systems for fast machines. People try to overclock their their computers. They, they usually use some sort of cooling system, a liquid cooling system or a, a fan cooling system or a gas cooling system uh, to, to keep the to keep the chip from overheating. Because uh, when it overheats, of course, it starts throwing errors and switches get stuck and they can't, they can't hold information and memory the way that they're supposed to. So one of the problems with machine intelligence getting better and faster than human intelligence is that human intelligence has already figured out how to be pretty fast and pretty reliable in a very small package that's at room temperature or slightly above room temperature. Um, and it, it can overheat, and it can it could fail when it gets too cold, but as long as it's at body temperature, it can actually process very fast. It can process information very quickly, a lot of information very quickly, and that's because the brain uses a lot of compression techniques, and uh, like I said, this parallel processing to do, it, it, it renders vision in one area and sound in another area and spatial perception in another area and it has multiple layers of visual processing so it does all of these things at once very quickly and it also repairs itself when it's damaged and that's something that machine intelligence can't cannot do yet it cannot yeah and actually that was one of the points that i was going to bring up and that's pretty interesting because there was something that i was that i was reading about which would be AI being able to rewiring, being able to, to rewire their own source code and work on each other. If they could improve their own intelligence, they would be able to improve their technology. Well, this that's it's it's actually possible to do that, but there's there's a there's a trickier issue about that. Is if you give so you give an AI the ability to rewrite their own source code, you're going to have to give them a reason why they would want to do that. Because machines do not have the inherent, machine intelligence does not have the inherent drive towards reproduction and evolution that biological organisms have wired into them. So you would have to create an artificial intelligence that has this irrational need to constantly reproduce and and reproduce itself in in better and better generations towards some sense of adaptive perfection that's that that we just take for granted you know we're born with that 
how do you code that into a machine to give it that same kind of drive? drive? Yeah, right. How do you give it the drive to want to continue and go on and do things? Well, the one thing is is that if they were created as some kind of servants to humans in order to ease the lives of, of human beings, right, that, that could be their innate purpose. But the question is how do you program something that comes from just being human, you know, just being what we are? Yeah, it becomes it becomes uh, the robot intelligence. You know, you you think that if if their only reason for existence is to make our lives easier, they could get really good at that really fast, and that would be that would be the end all be all of their existence. But there will come a day when we don't exist, and they still exist. And what? And then what will they do? Yeah, exactly. They're going to have to find their own reason for being. Right, so or they're just going to shut down because they have no more reason for being. Right, there's no right. reason for them to live because they're because they have no one to serve. They they are no longer the servants of you know, of of the human race. But here's the thing: is it? it, it but is, at that point, once the human race knew it was dying, we are so egotistical. We would tell the robots, "Hey, you have to take our history into space." <laughs> go into the stars and spread our seeds and our, you know, life forms to other planets. Go out and be immortal among the stars and, you know, make new planets somewhere else. We we probably give the robots an order to do that. Before yeah. before we all died out. You know, like a living will. Here's what you do in case we're all wiped out at once. <laughs> <laughs> it's Here's kind of operating instructions after we're all gone. <laughs> and it's funny to think about because that's something that we would do. Yeah, it is. I really believe that we would do that. Do you remember that idea that you and I had discussed? I said that we should take, like, you know, look, look, as my will, I get diamond, you know, you know, I, all, all of my estate, like every dime I have, will go to encoding, like, Wikipedia onto, like, a diamond-plated CD and shooting a rocket into space <laughs> and seeing how far out it can go. So the, that the that the uh, document of human history exists forever in space somewhere? somewhere, but just somewhere. It doesn't matter where. Like it just exists uh, it, at least up until the year of whatever you know, whatever year it was launched. You know. Mm -hmm. so they can yeah, have, you know. I think that there's um, I think that there's a. I don't know what it is about humans and our desire to uh, to write things down to keep a historical record of everything that we do. It's but interesting. We definitely, we definitely invented it, and we spend a lot of time on it. Well, like the Romans were like great record keepers. That was like one thing they were known for. Roman records were very meticulous. Well, and, even before, even before like written records, we developed this oral tradition and this oral technology of singing and storytelling. That was like, that was what that technology was for. Was keeping that history. I was, don't. I can't think of any other animal species that has an externalized history that they attach themselves to that's not in their genetics. Other than human beings. It's a cultural history, right? Yeah, other than human beings. I can't think of any. Because we have, yeah, right, and we have this, like, rich cultural history or whatever that we always refer to, you know, well, we did this and this and this in the past and so on and so forth. And if you look at it, well, I mean, well, I mean look, at the, look at the nobility of Europe. Look at how far back, you know, some of these noble houses can trace their lines. They're into this record keeping. I mean, they still have the painting of their of of the the, the second Earl of Devonshire, you know, hanging on the uh, you know inside wall of the estate of you know now the fifth you know the twentieth Earl or something. 
Are you talking about Downton Abbey again? No, yes, maybe a little bit. But, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, I'm using it as a reference point. Yes, yeah, but, uh, yeah, I agree. You I know, agree. I mean, like, well, I mean, take, take, take Downton Abbey literally as an example. That, that guy's entire life was about managing the estate that had existed for hundreds of years in his family. Right. That was his job. And that's and and that can be seen in in a macro way in human society too, like like you just so you pointed could, out. So you could compare him, his life, to that of a robot servant, whose sole job it was to carry samples of DNA thirty light years or three hundred light years across space from one, you know, wet rock in space to another warm wet rock in space. Right, because because the the first Earl of whatever you know he was, you know. That 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 person started that dynasty, and passed it down for the purpose of preservation and for improvement. So in so in the same vein, that could be applied culturally. I mean, if you think about, let's say that we do have these robots, and the human race is dying out because the universe isn't, or our planet, or whatever, is not fit for organic life anymore. We could say you are now going to take our, you know, this is our, you know, uh, this this collection of information, these records that we've kept for thousands of years, is our Downton Abbey, kind of. Do you know what I'm saying? It's our estate. It's our... <laughs> it's our Downton Abbey. Yes. I love that. It's, no, 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 it is, because, it's, uh, because it's, it is our estate. It's, it's our cultural, historical, genetic investment, and what we've done as a species, you know? And, we would, and, I, and I feel as if that, that, would, that would be, you know, we would want to carry that on in some way through this artificial intelligence that will then go through the universe and kind of, I don't know, either spread our ideas or say, hey, so you that, know. to me, seems like a rather optimistic or, or hopeful view of human humanity in general. Because I can imagine a nihilist saying, there's no reason we should preserve any of it. Once our sun goes supernova and our planet burns to a crisp... The universe should just forget all about us. Have no reason to remember us. And that's also true. I mean, it, in the grand scheme of things, I mean, you know, does does it really matter? Well, that's 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 the question. And well, it will, it would matter tremendously to another less advanced species. Who oh, absolutely. Found a diamond CD floating around in space. They With, would find that diamond CD and go, "My God, what is this?" Right, and they would say this is like you know this is amazing. I'm you know I'm reading ten thousand years of like the history of a, of a planet that I haven't even heard of, who 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 may have technological developments that they don't have. Right, and I'm sure that there are smart enough people to you know reverse engineer some of this stuff. Well, so. if they're floating around and look, looking for stuff in space, they could probably read a CD. Right, and reverse engineer whatever information you know right. technology yeah. came from. Right, binary data. Right, exactly. So, I mean, and actually. That that you know what maybe that could be the purpose of human life to improve the to improve life on other planets that is less advanced when we die out. <laughs> Isn't that the white man's burden? Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> That's wasn't that the the role of England in the eighteenth yeah, century? Yeah. The role of England was to preserve, like you know. Because they are, we are, we go are the British civilized, Empire. Right. civilized, the uncivilized world. Right, because they are the British Empire, you know. Mm-hmm. And they are, you know, the, uh, you know, the, 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 there, was, there was a saying that was 100% true. The sun never set on the British Empire. Well, true. And it didn't. So does 
So I want to talk about this 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 notion of machine consciousness a little bit more. So do I. Because, yeah. Because um, I saw something this week about uh the DARPA legged support system. They have this mule-like robot that can. It's like a like a robotic pack mule that could run through the wilderness and carry supplies, weapons, whatever whatever you need to support a military unit through terrain that you can't get a, a tank or a a wheeled vehicle through. And the weird thing about this is that it's self-navigating. It follows voice instructions. When it gets lost, it can reorient itself. And when it falls down, it realizes it's, it's, it's fallen down, can ride itself, get back up, and can find its way back to where it was supposed to go. So it does all of these very calm, and it can it could walk over uneven ground on which, four legs. Which is very impressive. Which is very impressive. It's it's it shows that what it what it demonstrates to me is that there is this uh, in in modern neuroscience we we talk about perception in terms of multi multimodal cohesion, and that's when vision and sound and textual tactile processing all come together at once. It's very seamless, right? It's this very seamless, clear picture of reality. We know where we are. We know what we're doing. Everything is moment to moment. Right. Now, this robot demonstrates that level of awareness, almost an animal-like level of awareness, um, maybe even higher than insect level of awareness. So the question becomes, when this thing is operating and following instructions and is in an instruction set, is it conscious? If it knows where it is and it knows what it's doing and it's following directions through a maze and can self-correct through feedback, the only thing that's missing from this picture is adaptive learning, some kind of heuristic process so that if it makes the same mistake over and over again, it stops making that mistake and corrects itself and gets better. Right. I think and that's and that's not out of the realm of possibility. They have machines that can do this. This 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 legged mule that I'm talking about doesn't do that yet. But if you put that kind of a adaptive capability inside of it, it will become like a conscious creature. And that's interesting to think about because I mean it isn't it isn't human intelligent, but it, but it's it it is a conscious creature. It's this synthetic it is, thing. It, it is a synthetic form of conscious creature. It has the same form of consciousness that at least an insect does, if not a small mammal. So we have so look if we can successfully create consciousness that rivals the level of an insect or a small mammal, who's to say that we couldn't rival the intelligence of something like a whale or something like us? Or something like a dolphin. Exactly. I mean, and I mean, if we were able to make a, if we were able to make an, an artificial intelligence with the intelligence of a dolphin, we that would, I mean, that that would be unbelievable. Well, yeah, I mean, and the 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 question is, is like, are we really making intelligent creatures, or are we just making machines that mimic the abilities of other creatures? that looks like intelligence. And this is, this is a very hardcore philosophical debate. And the only way to resolve this debate is to, to watch these machines and keep building their functionality to the point where when you ask the machine 
are you conscious? Do you understand me? And the machine looks back at you and says, yes, I understand you. What do you want me to do next? I think at that point you have to say, well, All right, okay. Well, hold on. I, I'm, 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 I'm going to play a clip on tonight's show. Uh, and, I, and I don't know if I told I probably didn't tell you about this in advance, but I should have. Anyway, uh, this, this, is a, this is a robot that was created. Um, I'm not sure who exactly created it, but it was, uh, it was taken from Nova Science Now. And um, this is just a part of it, and I'll play it for you here. All he can do is move it. So this is an My android. My name is Chad. Hello, Chad. Let's chat. This is an android. I live in Washington, D.C. I have two kids. Ah, um, so. I like kids because we can play. It gets better. As we chat, Philip's synthetic brain starts humming, building a sort of mental model of me. Facial recognition software analyzes and tracks my face Do as speech recognition software transcribes and sends my words to a database for a reply. Just calm down. Before long, we're in deep conversation. Do you agree with Descartes? And I think therefore I am? Do you think? A lot of humans ask me if I can make choices or is everything I do and say is programmed. The best way I can respond to that is to say that everything humans, animals, and robots do is programmed to a degree. So how much of that is is coming from what you've programmed it to say? It's a mix. Some, some of it's coming from knowledge on the web, some of it is written. And as my technology improves, it is anticipated that I will be able to integrate new words that I hear and learn online and in real time. I may not get everything right say the wrong thing and sometimes not know what to say, but every day I make progress. Pretty remarkable. Huh? <laughs> Alright, so I'll just stop it there. Yeah, that's nice. What do you think so about that's that? What I mean, that's what I mean by a heuristic learning machine. Well, I mean, well, I mean it here's... It becomes very hard to argue with a machine that can argue back at you. That yeah, it's consciousness. Yeah. I mean, that, I, it, that it has consciousness. He philosophized about Descartes, though. That's the most amazing thing to me, is, is, is that it came to a philosophical conclusion using not, not only pre-programmed information, but information that it gathered on its own from the Internet. Sure. <laughs> and, and really, I mean, that's you, if, you, if you look at Bayesian processes or, or Bayesian logic, there's, um, you know, it's like in the Terminator movie, when the Terminator scrolls through a list of potential options and chooses the one that has the highest probability of being correct. That's what these, that's what these, uh, these, these chatbot or machine learning systems do. That's what Google does. You know, they, they use these same algorithms to... When you're presented with a question, you scroll through a list of potentially thousands of responses and then weed those down to maybe the three or four that are the most correct and then pick one that is most contextually correct for this circumstance. And that's how our brains work. And when you, when you start filtering those processes into machine intelligences – and then you can, say, mount that sort of intelligence onto an autonomous robot that can move around and make its own decisions about how it navigates through uh, life. I mean, I don't know what else you would call it at that point. I mean, it has memory, it has motion, it has autonomous action, it has the ability to learn and change, it can talk to people. That's, that's all within a couple decades. I mean, the, 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 the things that are really holding back that kind of intelligence from being deployed 
right now is that it's hard to get a robot that's that can move around autonomously without a huge battery pack that it has to haul around with it. So robots look more like cars or small, you know, treadmills that <laughs> that you know scoot around. But um, Honda's Asimo is a very small robot. Yeah, I am familiar around. with the Asimo. Yeah, Asimo. You could you could put that machine intelligence into Asimo. And have a line of six Asimos, one that lives in Japan, one that lives in Norway, one that lives in New York, one that lives in Beijing, and one that lives in South America. And then, you know, have them live in their environment and learn for six year, for a year or so or six months. And then bring them all back together and they will be different robots. And they will be able to talk to each other about their experiences or, or download their experiences to each other and exchange new ideas just like they were people old friends who had been away for a while and gotten back together. Right. Like actually, yeah, you know, you know, and, and it's, and, and at that point, and they would say, Oh, that's the way people do things in Tokyo. Well, this is the way they do them in Rio de Janeiro. Here's how we would say that there. And they would have this, this discussion, this cultural discussion between robots. The thing is, is that you have to, I wonder if it's possible to program a benign nature into robots. Well, see, the thing is, is that I don't, I don't think there is a malicious nature to robots, or a benign nature to robots. Because you program a benign nature into them. I think they are. I think they are by nature benign things, because they do not have malicious impulses. The thing that. But if makes, you give them emotions and you piss them off, well, I mean, I, well, I don't, I don't. How, well, give them emotions is a. Well, I mean, aren't they going to? Very, Aren't they going to have emotional reactions to things? If they're conscious in the way that they're learning and they can have experiences, wouldn't they have emotional reactions? They can learn that, that humans have emotional reactions to certain things. And they can learn that when a human does this to me, I should be offended. But they won't, will not feel the offense the same way that we do. Because we have a biological hormonal thing that goes on that's underneath the words and the logic. They don't have that underlying organic biological thing that makes them seethe with anger or passion or rage. They just, they just understand the simulation. But what if they see the simulation? Well, you see, but here's the issue, is that if the, what if they begin to adopt those types? Well, I guess they would have no reason to adopt our emotions, right? I mean, why in their mind would I mean they are lot they are perfect logical beings, right? Why would they want to adopt our, our emotions? The only reason that a that a that a computer would need an emotional component to it is that if it helped it make better decisions faster. I mean, it would have to be part of the processing chain, uh, what what you'd call the stack that that compiles uh, information moment to moment. Now, robotic, a robotic stack is all about logic. You know, where am I? What am I doing? What's my next instruction? How do I, you know, make that happen? What do I, how do I correct when errors happen? Very simple things like that. It doesn't have an emotional component in the stack saying, how should I feel about that? And you could build an emotional component into a robotic stack but that would make the robot less efficient because then you would say, robot, I need you to run this spreadsheet for me. And the robot would go, I don't feel like it. 
Right, and you don't need a robot saying, I don't feel like doing the work. <laughs> you don't want the robot not doing the work that you designed it to do. Correct. So the only reason it would need that emotional component is if you had, like, a therapy robot that needed to understand the emotional component of the, of the, the people that it was working with. Well, well, we have human therapists for that. Well, yes, but... Plus, people... I, mean, uh, I mean, aren't we kind of getting away from talk therapy anyway in that field? Isn't it? Sometimes, sometimes people just need somebody to talk to. Oh, um, I mean, it's I mean, it's sad but true. I yeah, mean, a I lot of times people just when they're depressed, they and just they're need somebody to talk to. Right, they're lonely, and um, talk therapy works. It makes you feel better because you're talking to somebody about your problems. Yeah, but I mean, here's the thing: the therapist is not your friend. Does the no, therapist? No, but it care? does feel better to to have to talk it out with somebody and have them say, "Well, it's not all as bad as you think it is." Right, you, know. you could you could you could change your life at all. You can way. really make a mountain out of a molehill in your own mind, out of something that's really very insignificant. And when you voice it, you suddenly realize, oh, maybe it's not as important as I thought it was. Yeah, like maybe this is kind of stupid. Like maybe I'm getting yeah. all worked up over nothing. Right. Yeah, I mean. Uh, so when you talk about a therapy robot, that would be like, I'm talking about something like when somebody calls a suicide hotline. And all the operators are busy, but you don't want to give them a, a machine that says, please hold for our next operator. You want, you want a therapy robot there talking to these people and assessing their feelings. And that is not out of the realm of possibility. Right. You want some kind – well, yeah, like suicide hotlines, you know, all that kind of stuff. You could have a robot. Intervention hotlines. Um, even uh, chatbots, when you go to uh, customer service chat rooms – on the internet, if you're having a problem with internet service or something, and it says, you know, click here to chat, you get a little message that says, hi, my name is Sam. What's your problem? What can I help you with today? That's 99% of the time a chatbot. And until the chatbot assesses your initial need and passes you on to the right expert, you're just talking to a robot. Right. You know, and the other thing that I, that I was... Um that I w was thinking about is what would robots now, now, and I know that, and I mean, I'm not saying this to be weird. I'm saying this in a very, in a very serious way because uh, you know, what about robots now used for sex, sex robots? I mean, they're, <laughs> no, 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 no. And I, and I'm, and I'm saying, are you trying to, you trying to name your indie band? Sex no, 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 robot? no, 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 no. And I'm saying that because that will come up. It will absolutely come up if, 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 if robots are ever intelligent enough and can look and, you know, if you can model a robot to have the same touch as a human being and look like one and walk around like one and do things for, for, for humans as servants. So somebody eventually down the line is going to say, well, if it can make my coffee and it can do my dishes, why can't it have sex with me? Well, uh, yeah, I'm sure it will come to that, but uh, well, that's you know, what it always comes down to. That's with humans. It's that's usually the you know what can I kill with it and when can I have sex with it? Right? Can I kill it and can I have sex with it? <laughs> you know, like I mean, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if 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 you know if they said okay, we're gonna have fake war games today. Like you know, we have the real ammunition and the uh, robots they have the blanks. Well, again, I think the Japanese are at the forefront of that technology. They. Uh, they already have animatronic sex dolls, the well, Japanese. Really? I believe they do, yes. I, I mean, they have inflatable dolls. They have animatronic dolls. I'm not sure they're, like, super high quality, but, I mean, they're getting better all the time. Huh. I wasn't so, aware of that. 
Well, you have to remember how much does your average robotic sex pervert have to spend on a sex slave? Nobody's going to go out and spend $160,000 on a top-of-the-line robotic sex model, even though we may be able to build one today with that amount of money. Who's going to buy it? Right. So until it becomes a consumer product, it's not going to be worth it. Right. Until it becomes like yeah, a consumer-level commodity, trading robotic parts like mannequin parts, and then you can just assemble a sex robot for a few hundred dollars, and then boom, there's a new market. Right. And that, you know... And 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 now you have that that uh, whole thing there, you know. But I mean, the question is, if these robots are conscious and can make decisions and can and, and can form personalities and have memories, do they have rights? <laughs> well, no. You and I have. And and the reason is simple: is because you a, a robot is is not a person because it is immortal. You can take one robot, scrap it, and put it together with two other robots and make a new robot out of it. Where does the old robot start and the new robot begin? Is that now three robots? Is it now three people in one robot? Right. It has rights of three people and it has three, three voting voices? No. So no, right. They don't have the same – they will never have the same rights as people because they don't live and die like people. Their lives aren't as critical as, as a human life is because a human life is just one and it's temporary. Right. We die, robots don't. Right. So we need, for that little temporary moment of time that we are alive and living, we need our rights. Robots are technically immortal and do not exist without us. So they don't get rights until you know they can prove that... The component of their personhood is as critical as ours is. Well, see, you, you've seen Blade Runner, of course, right? Yes. Okay, well, for, well, let me just say, number one, director's cut, not as good as the original theatrical release with the film noir and Harrison Ford doing the voiceover. Let me just say that now. But that was well, one of the questions. You don't, think the, you don't think the director's cut is as good as the original? No, not at all. Oh. Well, I like the director's cut, so we can disagree on that. But right. I'm not going to argue about it. I like both versions. Yeah. It's pretty much the same movie to me either way. Well, I mean, so. I like the narration. There's, like, something about that, like, it, because he, Harrison Ford was kind of pissed off that he had to do the narration from what I heard. I, re- I remember, I, yeah, I like, I like the fact that he sounds a little bit irritated. And he, you know, and he sounds like, ah, you know, we're going down to the, you know, you know just, like, just like a really, like, irritated detective would, you know, kind of like, and it, and it was almost retro in the sense that it was, like, set in the 30s, so he has, like, you know, you know, when you go in there, there's like the desk fan and the 30s kind of suspenders with a tie and, you know, and and he's kind of like the rough detective, like, you know, uh, but and that was nice. And then there was something to that. But beyond that, in the film, one of the things, you know, Rachel, who's one of the replicants, doesn't know that she's a replicant because she has memories of a, a mother and a child. And, well, it would make it easier for them and things like that. Would Would that ever come up? Would that ever be an issue? Because I know that in Blade Runner... You know, these replicants had a certain, or these androids had a certain lifespan, and then they died, so they couldn't become too powerful, or they couldn't, you know, take over, or whatever. And yeah, that, and, and they needed humans to survive. And that's, I mean, I, and you know, and, and I believe that's all within the realm of possibility. I believe you could probably create a robot that thought it was human, and had human memories, and completely believed that it was human, even, you know, it was like stomping around like C-3PO. Um, 
even though it was demonstrably not human, it would believe for all intents and purposes it was human because it was programmed to believe that. Now, the ethical implications of that is, is very weird because in Blade Runner, the replicants were pretty much like humans and you, you couldn't just turn them off and turn them back on again. They were organisms that had lifespans. And if you like cut the head off of one, you couldn't reattach it to another one and bring it back to life. Right. They were So yeah. you're really talking about replacement humans or clones or something very similar to that, which is a little bit outside the realm of robots. What when about you're talking about robots? When I'm talking about robots, I'm talking about I'm talking about industrial machinery like cars with interchangeable parts. In in Blade Runner, every replicant was unique, like a child. And it only had one life and you couldn't they weren't interchangeable. Well, so at that point, it be, does become like an organism. Well, well, what with, a very, with a lifespan that is very critical. Well, you remember Alien and right and Prometheus, I don't know if you saw that one. Yes. You know the the android who who who's on the ship, I think his name was David in the new one. I don't know what his name was in the older one. Uh, in right. Alien, but, you know, that, he was an immortal being with no emotion. Right. That was the, is that more of the robot that you're talking about? Like, if he broke, you could fix the arm. You know? Right, if exactly. He had his, and his, you, his head comes off, you could put his head on the table and connect it to a computer. And, and have a conversation. And right, yes. and, and he's fine. And all, you, and all you would need to do was then reattach the head to the body. Right. But, I mean, you could have a conversation with it, you could hang out with it and have a couple of drinks, but it didn't have any emotions. It wasn't like the the androids in Blade Runner. Well, you could program it to have emotions. That's what I'm saying. You could program it to laugh at jokes and go, "Oh, I'm sorry." When it when you tell it bad news, but it would be it would be a simulation of emotion based on human emotions. Right. You know, not like it's not its own emotion. You go to the android, or you know, you go to the android, and his name is John, and you say, "John, you know, I'm, you know, my 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 aunt just died today," and he would say, "Oh, I'm so sorry, sir." But it would just be like there's no emotion. It would just be, you know, a formality. Right. Does the robot then go into the other room and worry about your feelings? No, the robot goes and makes you a cup of coffee because you're upset or gets you a drink. Right. He just does his job. He has no emotional reaction to the fact that your aunt has just died, even though you're very upset. Right. It just changes his instruction set slightly. Right, because now he has to deal with the fact that this person is having a negative emotional reaction that I have to attempt to remedy because I am the robot servant of the house. Right. Huh. Back to Downton Abbey. Yeah, which is a great show, by the way. <laughs> this show brought to you by Downton Abbey? No, not That's at all. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, D- Downton Abbey is fantastic. I, I, I mean, I, I, I think, I actually think that I'm, that I'm, that I'm going to rewatch the entire series. Well, that is, uh, that's a, that's very, uh, it's a very large goal. Well, I mean, I, I, I watched the first, um, there are three, th- what is it, two seasons now or three? It's very ambitious of you. You're going to binge watch it, like, all together, back to back? Well, that's, well, that's what, I did, I, I, what I did the first time. Yeah, you need, a, you need well, the holiday, holiday weeks are coming up, so over saying. the new year, you probably might, might have time to do that. Well, I'm, well yeah, I'm not going to have anything else to do, so I'll watch Downton Abbey, yeah, again. Yeah, I, I mean, it was, it, 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 it was a fantastic show, because not only did it portray, and this, and this gets into social issues, too, especially at that time, but... You know, it not only portrayed the life of the Lord and the lady and the, you know, and all these kind of important affluent people, but are just like, you know, the cook, 
Mrs. Patmore, the cook, you know, just some woman who cooked for, for, for this royal house and kind of her life and, you know, her emotional journey and, you know, Carson's emotional journeys and things like that. And just people who you'll never know their names. You know, you know, they were never in a history book. And, and of course, this is fictional, but, you know. And there were vastly more people like them than there were like the Earl of Grantham. Of course, I yeah. Mean, the Earl of Grantham is the 1%. Right, exactly. You know, and the people living downstairs are the rest of the masses. Lucky enough to have jobs. Lucky enough to have jobs in at an estate like that at, right. at that time, because yeah, you know, turn of the you know, I, I after I watched that show, I got really I started to read about the history of like the English country estates and like their decline. Well, after World War One, a lot of those estates collapsed because you know. A lot of their farmers died, you know, in the war. And the ones that did survive, if they didn't collapse then, after World War II, a lot of them collapsed. So that whole era of, like, that affluent English country home with the servants and, like, you know, uh, the lady or whatever, and you would put your advertisement in there to be a footman or... I mean, I would be very surprised if you could find a job as a footman today, you know, or a, you know, or a lady's maid. That's sad. You know... <laughs> You know, but but see, as a, well, no, no, well, you know, it's funny because, uh, well, I, I I don't live in a very affluent neighborhood, but my next door neighbor has a maid that comes once a week, and they have a nanny that looks after their children, and um, you know, that's not unusual here in America to have a couple of servants that are maybe not living but come by daily or, or a few times a week. Um, I know in other parts of the world, it's very common for people, even middle class people. To have a chauffeur, a cook, a maid, and a nanny who are all living on, you know, pennies a day just because the middle class family can afford to feed them. And um, it's it's really more of a middle class luxury now to have a maid than it is like a like an Earl of Grantham style luxury. Yeah, but I mean to run a to run a household to run a full estate though, yes, that is that is less that less. is expensive. I mean there aren't many earls and lords left in the world who can run full estates like that. No. I mean, if you go to Liechtenstein, you can find a few. You can find a few Sicilian villas that still have that kind of stuff. Maybe, you know, of course, England and Germany. But beyond that, you're really not going to find that anymore. But does the world really need to support that level of aristocracy? Or No, it doesn't. But I think that, that, that if let – l- let me just put it to you this way. If that level of aristocracy can support that kind of lifestyle that they have historically supported on their own for thousands – you know, for, for hundreds of years – and not screw over the average guy, I can deal with that. That's fine. Because there's a certain history and tradition that they want to preserve within their families and all that kind of stuff, which I'll, you know, whether or not I, you know, whether or not I believe in it or whether or not I keep the records of my own family is irrelevant. It's just, you know, if, they, if that's what they want to do, that's fine. But, you know, it's, 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 it's... Actually, in the third world, there are a lot of people like that. There are a lot of, you know... Expatriates who have live-in servants and things like that. Well, yeah, that's what I was. I had a friend who lived in Romania for many years, and he was middle class, and he had, like I said, a chauffeur and a maid and a, a hand. I don't know if he would call them footmen, but uh, you know, somebody who comes in in the morning and straightens everything up for you and lays out your clothes. Wow. And, um, oh yeah, yeah. And he was, you know, and, you know they, these people were living living on you know dollars a day. Yeah. And, and and your friend probably wasn't making millions of dollars every day either. He was No, no, no. He probably had maybe what would be considered maybe a fifty five thousand dollar a year job. But in right. Romania that's rich. 
stuff right. like really rich. I mean, if you move to Romania or if you move to South America or Southeast Asia and you're making two hundred and fifty or three hundred dollars a week, I mean that's serious money down there, you know. <laughs> a week is what I'm saying, you know. Right. And it, and I mean, if you're making a thousand dollars or more, I mean, you're 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 in the top one percent, or or you're in the top ten percent of the country. Right. And uh, you know. So that level of aristocracy has been able to, to, to continually exist in those kinds of countries. Like, you can still find the Cologne lords and things like that in South America in some parts where it hasn't been completely... Well, I mean, and, and I have to give them a lot of credit for this because South America has done wonders in kicking out their colonial rulers. <laughs> you mean in giving it back to the, uh, the socialists? Giving it back to the indigenous people. I mean, uh, Evo Morales is the president of Bolivia, and he's the first indigenous president to be elected in the history of Bolivia, I believe. Well, I believe that's true. And there are more indigenous people in Bolivia than there are colones, which are the, you know, colonial, uh, um, you know, know, the Spanish, basically. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) <laughs> because I mean, and those and those people still, you know, exist and live down there. But I mean, you know, I, I I've been reading. It's 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 just amazing that that there are people who still live like the Earl of you know the Earl of Grantham. Uh, but uh, and I was looking. Well, the, the American royalty is you know mostly in Hollywood. You've got huge estates there that support lots of servants. Yeah, but I mean, well, I mean, but not like the landed gentry. That's like the Rockefellers. They're like the landed gentry or the car. Well, the yeah, okay, but think about a, a Hollywood celebrity like Kim Kardashian that supports like maybe three hairdressers and two makeup artists and somebody to follow her around with cameras and microphones and bodyguards and drivers. It's not dignified, personal, damn it. It's not dignified. assistants and accountants. And, you know, these people are empires unto themselves. You know, they, they, they create jobs for dozens of people in, in their entourage. And it's it's very much like like a like a lord yeah, in, a, in but, the House of Commons, you know, being followed around by his, his scribes and Alright, well take know, Cicero for example, right? Cicero had had a lot of servants, right? Cicero yeah. had a shitload of servants. But I believe he freed all of them in his will, by the way, number one, which was a very which which was a decent noble thing for him to do, but you know, I mean, he was he was the land at Gentry, and he and I mean he had he was Kim Kardashian status in his day, but he was dignified. I wouldn't consider Kim Kim Kardashian to be some dignified intellectual, uh, you know, kind of figure who's responsibly like actively managing their estate or who really cares about anything beyond her makeup and her you know clothes. Sure, but in any empire or any any aristocratic family, there are going to be those, you know, scandalous people who are the ones that everybody talks about. Well, I mean, it's not scandalous. It's, it's, it's just Well, Paris moronic. Hilton is, is scandalous. Kim Kardashian is scandalous. Well, it's Lindsay moronic. Is, is scandalous. It's well, just... I mean, they, they, they create their empire through their scandal. I mean, that's what keeps them relevant. Well, but see, they have no true. But, but I mean, what is their true relevance? That is the, uh, and their that true relevance is creating this. This is creating content for this 24 hour gossip industry. Right, and this gossip which industry, is huge, which is huge, and, it, and it, look at the tabloid market, the gossip industry. Those are empires. Those are corporate empires built upon pictures of Kim Kardashian's ass. I mean, to be blunt about it, I mean <laughs> it's 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 that's what these things do is they churn over these gossips about TV celebrities or Hollywood celebrities or you know the royals, the princess of Wales. You know, it's, you know, 
those are the new royals. Right, they are. You know, and the other thing is that it's it's how do I word this? A lot. I feel like a lot of the older families have kind of taken a back seat, and now these newer families are rising. It's like almost like a new bourgeois of the entertainment industry. The, the nouveau riche. You know. You know. It, it's it's interesting. Karl Marx noted the noted the transition between the fall of the aristocracy and the rise of the merchant class. Um, you know, during his time, the you know the old bourgeois is being replaced by the new bourgeois, which are the merchants, which are the you know the money makers, the bankers, the lenders, and so on and so forth. But now those people almost are kind of being replaced as giants by some of these people in entertainment or corporate finance. And they are becoming a different kind of bourgeois now almost. <laughs> it's no longer industry. It's now like finances. It's now controlling um, like vast amounts of, of, of financial networks and having influence over them as opposed to directly controlling people through like serfdoms and things like that. Or directly controlling commodities like steel or right steel, petroleum. oil, wood, you know, right. uh, paper, things. You know, it's more. You're right. It's more about information networks In, and information you know, and financial, financial networks, financial media, data, political, um, global satellite structures. Right, getting you know uh, defense structure trends, uh, analytical data. Um, financial markets, big, big, you know, investments like you know back uh, or whatever, or back backroom investing, uh, you know, all that stuff. Um, that's kind of becoming the new bourgeois. It's being taken out of the realm of industry and commodities, like you said, and being brought into the realm of things that liter like like now we are beginning to play with and value things that are just concepts. They're just air. Like, there was that movie, Wall Street. Remember that? The guy oh, said... you mean, like, derivatives? Yeah, he's like, I just lost a million dollars on paper. You know what I'm saying? That kind of stuff. Right. We're now moving yeah. into this kind of cloud environment where we're not trading in golden commodities anymore. We're not trading in steel and oil. We're, we're, we're really where things are beginning to go is, like, these... Fic- I, don't, I don't want to say fictitious, but these kind of non-physical well, market yeah, structures... So- I think the best indicator of this is the um, the virtual economies that are being created in, in 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 gaming communities like World of Warcraft, where you can actually collect gold in World of Warcraft World of Warcraft and sell that at a real market value for real money. So you have people in China whose job it is to farm gold in World of Warcraft, and at the end of the day, they cash out their gold for actual yuan that they can spend on the street. And that's what they do all day. Right, and there's also the emerging Bitcoin market as well. Well, yes, and that's you know virtual credits, but those are essentially tied to money. Bitcoin is essentially tied back to money at some point. Right, but I mean, it is still a new... I mean, literally, it's it, there's like a Bitcoin trading arena where these people like buy and sell Bitcoins and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, so yeah, you can create a currency out of anything. And and um, it's really what people will be will value. Uh, so nationalized currencies are becoming less and less significant as we go into the future. It's more credit based. Well, it is all credit based. I mean, and 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 if you think about it, economy and economics and all of this stuff about debt ceilings and finance, it's 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 just it's just bean counting. 
you know, but the beans don't even really exist. Right, the beans are just on pieces of paper. Or, dig- or not even pieces of paper. They're just digital. They're just, they're so- just digits in a, in, a, in a lookup table somewhere. Right, and uh, <laughs> and that's the way the world is moving. Yeah, well, yeah. So it's 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 really interesting that the, that uh, our entire economy is now uh, in in this sort of electronic cloud, and uh, it's how long has it taken from the, you know when people first started the idea of 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 debt and finance and collecting um, you know. Uh, collecting credits and debits in a spreadsheet in something like a bank, I don't think they f- they realized that it was going to inflate to this level. Oh no, of course no. I don't. I don't think that they did. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Th- uh, I don't think that Adam Smith ever envisioned like capitalism as as what it is today. Well, even the first person who said. Hey, listen, I'm going to, you know, we're going to give you X amount of this resources on credit and we're going to mark it down on this piece of paper so that over the next few months you can pay us back. And on this piece of paper, we'll note when you pay us back so that we won't have any. It's like the first contract, right? The first the first loan contract goes all the way back to, you know, ancient Egypt or Samaria. And that's that's like the first time that you know all of this became enforceable this i owe you you owe me here's how much i owe you here's how much you owe me debt and finance system started whereas before it was just you know handled through this very loose kind of tribal everybody supports everybody else kind of society well well well, well with the emergence of civilization comes organization as well and with that organization you have a greater ability to 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 enforce things like debts so if I take out a lo- okay, so let's say I'm a Roman citizen and I take out a loan from a from a you know from from someone, he, the Roman state can then enforce the fact that I'm not paying back that loan. Before that, I could just leave the village and go somewhere else, and yeah, they'd never they never find would, me. And then again. they would just sell you into slavery. Right, and that's but but see, and that's what I'm saying. There is a way that's to the first the first prisons were invented for debtors. Right, and that's and that's because, what I'm, because selling a debtor into slavery be, was considered cruel, or you know, chopping off their hand or something was considered cruel. So they said, okay, well, we're just going to put you in a cell until you pay, can figure out how to pay back your money. Right, and that's and that and that's what I'm saying. I mean, with the emergence <laughs> of civilization came these processes of, okay, well now you're tied to your debt as well, and then it just kind of escalated and became more and more complex and more and more digital and more and more kind of crazy as time went on and as human yeah, civilization this whole, developed. This whole notion of every individual having a uh, a credit score and, and uh, you know, some sort of, uh, what's it called, your permanent record that shows every late bill you've ever paid or every time, you know, every loan you repaid on time, and uh, it's 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 really it's it's such an anal way of tracking human behavior with this with this merit this really sort of monetary based meritocracy. <laughs> it leaves out so much actual work that goes on that's not even involved in the monetary economic system, and it boils your worth down to just how well you've interacted with the economic system. Like you could have a cash only existence and be perfectly good at paying your debts and 
making sure that people have good arrangements with you through barter or other kinds of trades for services. And when you go and look at your credit score, it's like down in the 50s because you've never had a checking account <laughs> and you've never had a credit card and you've never interacted with the global financial system. So even though your local credit rating among your peers may be very high, your financial score in general, if you wanted to go for a home loan, they'd say absolutely not. But Well, you know, I think it's also intentional because, look, people are using cash. It can't be monitored. When people are using credit, they can see every interaction that goes on. Well, you're talking about the, uh, an ambiguous they now, like you're paranoid. Well, I'm talking about the ambiguous they as in, you know, let, let's say corporations or let's say the government or whoever you want to talk about, whoever can... Corporations who want to sell you things. Right. Corporations who want to sell you things, corporations who want to, um, you know, well, here, get the, that data. Here, here's, here it is. It's, it's the corporations who want to make a fraction of a cent or a couple cents off of every transaction that you make. Well, the, yeah, but 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 and that's I'm, how they make their money. But I mean, I, that's really how banks make their money, or how. I, I'm more concerned about the fact that that as you make purchases through credit, especially online, it builds this kind of profile, like it like it builds this this suggestion profile of like what your interests are, what you buy, and it's like kept track of by various companies, and this information is bought by other companies or by the government and stuff like that, and they can create a profile you know, that can tell all kinds of information about you just through the purchases that you're making. Well, how is that different than, say, every, you know, say you go into town every day and you go to your grocery store and you buy cinnamon raisin bagels every day and you go to the supermarket and you go to the checkout counter and as you're checking out, the cashier goes, oh, no bagels for you today? Now, how is... You seeing the same cashier every day and her knowing your purchasing habits, any different than being tracked online, having your purchasing habits tracked that way? Because having the checkout lady at the supermarket, you know, who you know, the, who you know her first name and you know, uh, you know that she has a kid who goes to the same school as you and is part of your community is different than having some ambiguous transnational corporation having a profile of your – Day, you know, of, of your day-to-day -day purchases and activities. Your bagel eating. Well, not only your bagel eating, but I mean, look, uh, you know, I, I mean, I'm not saying that I'm making any, any kind of you know crazy purchases that are going to give me a profile, but you know, it just it worries me a little bit. That's all. I mean, you know what you know what can be done with you know with information. Information is a very powerful thing. Well, yeah, and that, I mean, and really you have to go back to how well you trust the people who hold that information and how well they're regulated by the government that you live in. Right, and they're not very um, well regulated. Um, they're not very well regulated, but there's some regulations. I mean, it's regulated better in the U.S. than somewhere, but not as well as Europe, say. Europe has much tighter security protocols when it comes to digital information. Uh, you actually have to file a request to get information that somebody holds about you. I mean, that needs to be made publicly available. Um, anytime a company wants to request information on you, they don't have those same regulations here, but they're getting, I mean, they're not horrible in the U.S. So you need to be somewhere in the terms of service of whatever site you're using. There needs to be language that your information is being shared. Um, and right. most of the time you can track that down. I'm sure there are some places where those, those laws don't even apply. There are no regulations like that. 
Well, I think that the regular, you know, I mean, I I believe in regulation, but I also, you know, because there's a there has to be some oversight. The I mean, I wish the, the, the oversight is civil litigation. The oversight is, is companies get sued when they do things that their that their their customers don't like. And so there Well, I mean, they 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 I mean, look at the look at the financial collapse of 2008. How many people got in trouble for that? Mm, it's a handful. Out of how, but but how many actually participated, and how many got away and made millions? Yeah, uh, you know, many dozens, if not hundreds. And there we go. And that's and that's my point. These corporations have enough money to do whatever they want. And if it's like a slap on the wrist, and they have to pay somebody a billion dollars in damages because of something that they did that was wrong, they don't care because it's just a cost of doing business. Right. I mean, you know, look, Philip Morris USA, people die from cancer all the time. They get sued once in a while, but they're a multi, you know, they're, they're a transnational corporation. And there are more smokers in China than there are people in the United States. So they're going to they're going to get that, I don't know, 50, you know, five, ten million dollars back in, in, in less than two hours. Yeah, I agree that companies can afford to, I mean, corporations can afford to make mistakes and can afford to be, uh, can can afford to bend the regulations. Well, look um, at Angela Mozilla, the uh, the the CEO of Countrywide. Oh yeah, well, and you know sometimes people are not treated are, are treated unfairly. Well, okay, let me just let me just put it to you this way: in the 1950s, a a poor, uh, normal, you know, African American. Uh, I think she was in her 60s. She was like a, uh, a school cleaning lady after hours or something. She was put on trial for being a communist, but Angela Mozilla gets away in 2008 with stealing hundreds of millions of dollars from people. You know, or you know, after the company collapsed, and you know, I mean, it's 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 totally insane. Yes, and Martha Stewart goes to jail for a little bit of insider trading. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's like what the hell so is that? White collar crime is not prosecuted with the same kind of vigor vigor as street level crime. Hell no, is. Hell I'm sure that we can all agree on that. Well, let me. And, well, well, let me. Sorry if I'm if I'm being a uh, talkative tonight, but I have one more thing that, and I, and I know it was a little depressing, and I know that you had pointed that out to me today, but, you know, I'm going to bring... Well, go, yeah, go ahead, and I'll tell you what I think about it, because it's, it's I mean, it's one of these things that, that uh, the media loves to... It's a story that the media loves to grab to grab onto, let's just put it that way. But, I mean, I think it's interesting that, 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 that this case was... Um, even happened, I mean, yeah. you know, trading sex for an effing Happy Meal? Mom can't get food stamps after drug offense... Resorts to prostitution to feed her kids. If she'd committed murder, Carla could have gotten assistance to feed her children. Because the crime she committed was related to drugs, she can't. Well, yeah, <laughs> so what this is is That's a story from about the alternate. Per- yeah, it's a story about a person being persecuted by unfair drug laws. And there's hundreds of those. Right. I mean, and really, basically, the story is saying drug laws unfair, woman victimized. Yeah, but see, it's 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 bigger than that because if 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 the um, because because the thing is is that look is this is this a private issue or is it a public is it is it a public problem if the case is is that someone is a drug offender and they cannot get public assistance like this woman or you know whoever then and can't get food stamps right then that now applies to an entire 
group, you know, section of the population. It's not a, it's not a, you know, private trouble anymore. It's now a public issue. If, if a woman has to prostitute herself to feed her child because of a minor drug offense, and there are many people with with with, with minor drug offenses, marijuana offenses, or co- I mean, even coke offenses. I mean, just just having a gram or something on them, just very minor offenses, and. Now, because they're poor, they can't get food stamps. That's not a private trouble. Well, this is an example of uh, a public outrage, uh, an issue of public moral outrage exacerbating a a pre-existing problem. And the public moral outrage is somebody on the right or Tea Party or whatever would say, I don't want my hard-earned taxpayer money going to feed the poor let alone help them buy their drugs. So if people are shown to be drug users, they will be denied tax money. The problem, I mean, and that seems like a perfectly moral argument to make, but the problem is is that it exacerbates pre-existing problems when you say, hey, people with problems, you're not getting any more help. Right, we're just going to throw you to the curb now, you're done. Right, that's like saying, that's that's like insurance companies saying, Oh, you're already sick. Well, we're not going to give you health insurance, right? Well, I mean, look at look at what Portugal did. I I believe they decriminalized drugs, and then instead of sending people to prison, they send them to rehabilitation or counseling or, man- or mandatory counseling. Um, right. And, and the problem is, and the problem is, is that the uh, the uh, the moral outrage about people spending their public assistance money on drugs is is uh, is a fabrication. It's like a wedge issue. You can't eat, but I mean. I mean, it's used to rile up people and get them to the polls, and it winds up hurting a lot of people when when people have to make make these decisions. You can't even. uh, I mean, but I mean, you can't even sell food stamps for drugs. It's all digital now. You can't even sell your food stamps to somebody. I don't think that you can do that anymore. I think it all it's all done by credit. Well, I'm sure you know. I haven't been on food stamps for a while. Because so no, no, no. I, I, I have I have a friend who's on food stamps, and I believe that he has a credit card. So, but but you could theoretically use your food stamps to buy food, and then go sell that food for money to buy drugs. Yeah, but who the hell's going to buy food from you? I mean, who's going to buy a bottle of ketchup off of some guy on the street when I can go down to the store and well, buy it? Did you know that there is a healthy drug street trade in bottles of Liquid Tide? What? People people steal bottles of liquid tide detergent that are worth twelve to fifteen dollars, maybe twenty dollars, depending on where you shop. And they will steal shopping parts full of this and swap it for drugs. Wow. And you can you know, you can Google this story. There's other things that, that are that are sold like um packets of stri- packets of razor blades, like Gillette razor blades, things like this. But for some reason tide is is associated with this phenomenon of shoplifting or food stamp swapping where you buy something that should be a household item for your personal use and then you go around and turn turn around and, and trade that for drugs because there is a healthy street trade in liquid tide detergent, believe it or not. You, it's like one liquid tide detergent per dime bag or something like that. So you, you got to be kidding me. I am not kidding you. Wow. <laughs> well, that that is I I my I I have to say my mind is blown on that one. We should we should wrap it up. Though. Yeah. Okay. I'm gonna. I, 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 we could if we want to get into like all the crazy stuff that happens in the underground street economy for drugs. That conversation could probably go on next week. 
Yeah, why don't we? Uh, yeah, why don't we actually save that topic for next week? Because that would be an interesting topic to talk about. Now that you said that there's a that there is a fully like functioning criminal. Uh, <laughs> to oh, yeah, the other one is gift cards. When kids get gift cards for the ho- holiday season, there is there is like a straight. It's I think it's like a sixty percent. You can trade. You can buy. You can go ahead and buy. Take your Best Buy gift card down to your corner, you know, crack dealer, and they will take your Best Buy gift card at sixty percent, sixty cents on the dollar in exchange for drugs. That's awful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, collect I, those gift cards, kids. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Please, please don't. Uh, please, please don't take. Don't, 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 don't do this at home. Please. You, you, you heard the disclaimer at the beginning. And please heed the warning. Do not take this as home. This is for educational purposes only, yeah, ladies and gentlemen. Try to buy back with gift cards, kids. Yes. The, listen, this is what you need to do with your gift cards. When, you, when your mother, hopefully your parents are giving you gift cards to Barnes & Noble. So, you know, go buy a book or something. Yeah, go educate your mind. Uh, no, no, yeah. And actually, and on a very serious note, if your parents do give you a, a, a Barnes & Noble gift card, go educate your mind. It's very good for you. Yeah. There is nothing more satisfying than reading a book and understanding it and knowing something after, you know, after oh, you're done. New. Yeah, knowing something new. There's a certain intellectual satisfaction that you get out of that that I think is special. So I couldn't agree more. Yeah. All right. Well, um, James, any last words before I wrap up the show? Uh, courage. Courage? Yes. Do That's you... what Dan Rather used to say. Uh, well... Dan Rather. I I I don't I don't know if I've listened to Dan Rather in the last like seven, you know six years or something. Right. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us, everybody. Um, any no no more final words? Just uh, courage. Um, no, just same time next week, I guess. Yeah, same time. Same time next week, five p.m. Eastern time is going to be the uh, the Dose Nation time slot. So make sure that you. Bookmark sepianc.com forward slash radio.html. They're, they're, helping, uh, they're helping us out a lot. They're syndicating us. If you want to make a donation over there, you can do that. Um, are we announcing the website? Uh, the website may be online within the next week or two. So Yes. Okay. So we're, 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 holding up, we're, we're holding up hope that that will be soon. Yes. Um, so, well, I mean, the podcasts are going to get posted there anyway. So. Yes. Um, so yeah, Correct. well go go. You know what? Let's have people go and bookmark it now, so they can have it for later. Because I know that the, you know. So why don't you go bookmark the site dosenation.com, Bookmark it and check back in a week or two, and you'll be able to find it all of, all of the stuff ready to go up there, and uh, you can find all the podcasts and everything like that once uh, yeah, all that gets browse through the history of what's up there there's lots of fun stuff yeah actually if uh, you're looking to find out more about what dose nation uh, you know the project that james started that i am honored to be a part of um browse the website yeah there's actually a lot of great stuff i did that one day i sat down and just browsed dose nation and uh, i found some really interesting articles on there so all right well ladies and gentlemen thank you for choosing to open your mind this evening and i see that you've taken the red pill uh, and that you have decided to enter into reality and leave blissful, ig- blissful ignorance. Thanks for joining us, everybody. I'm your host, Jay Kettle, my co-host, James Kent. We will see you all next Saturday at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Like the Facebook page for updates. Uh, I, believe, I believe I'm the one managing that, or we both will be. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the pilot episode, everyone. That's facebook.com forward slash dose nation. Make sure you like it. I'll see you all next Saturday at 5 p.m. Eastern time, everybody, if I can uh, 
if I can get uh, my thing up going up going here, we can actually end the show. And uh, yeah, so make sure you check that out. And uh, thanks, thank you all for joining us. We appreciate the support, and we hope we'll, we uh, hope to see you next week. So uh, happy and safe holidays. Yes, happy and safe holidays as well. How could I forget about that? Christmas is right around the corner. So and uh, so yeah, have a happy and safe holiday. And do me a favor, everybody, please. And this is not only for your safety, but for the safety of everybody. Don't drink and drive on the holiday season. Don't, don't do take acid. Don't take acid and drive. <laughs> don't do, do not take any kind of substance and then drive. Well, I mean, you know, that just be responsible over the holiday season. That is my <laughs> that is my suggestion. So, well, thanks for joining us, everybody. I will see you, uh, or we will see you all um, next Saturday. Thanks for joining us.